1: Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Mm. So said the great and powerful Oz to Dorothy and her friends. I don't know if it's still the most watched movie ever in the United States at least, but at least at one point in time, The Wizard of Oz was the most watched movie in America. It came out in 1939. Of course, the book came out decades before that. I tell you that because uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler today, but you've had your chances to see the movie. The Wizard of Oz was only pretending to be great and powerful as he hid behind the curtain. In reality, he was just a, a bab- above-average intelligence guy who was operating a very complicated machine, trying to project, literally project, an image of himself that was Greater than it was. Now, today we're going behind a different curtain and we're going to expose a very different spiritual reality. But unlike, contrary to the Wizard of Oz. We're exposing today not a man behind the curtain, but a woman behind the curtain, the woman of Revelation 17 and 18. And this woman is not a harmless woman pretending to be dangerous, but quite the contrary. She is a ravenous, bloodthirsty woman, a bloodthirsty whore. I'll get the uh, scanners on Facebook going. A whore pretending to be pious. And so as we go to Revelation 17 today, I want to stop, first of all, in chapter 1. Revelation 17 is where we're headed. Revelation 1 is where we're starting. Because I want to remind you what this book is all about. This book is a book of revelations. It is a book exposing what is future, And, as we'll see today, a book exposing what is already at work. But more than that, and more importantly than that, Revelation 1.1 tells us this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly or quickly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus and of all things that he saw. Revelation 19 tells us that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We study the book of Revelation, the same reason that we study Isaiah and Jeremiah and the book of Daniel, which we will mention several times this morning. We study prophecy, whether it is in the old or the new, from Genesis to Revelation, because it is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus is really like and what Jesus is really going to do. In human history. This is his revelation, we Study this book not only because as verse three says, blessed is he that readeth that they that hear the word of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. We study not only because we want God's blessing and we want to know how to live, but we study because it reveals to us our hope is not in a world system or in anything this world has to offer. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is coming again. And he's coming quickly when he comes. Suddenly. In fact, when he comes for his church, it will be in such a quick moment that it will be in the twinkling of an eye when that last trump sounds. Now, what the book of Revelation does for us is it collects and coordinates a sequence of previously prophesied end times events from Genesis to Jude. We have a number of prophecies. Some have said as much as uh, 30 percent or a third. Some have even gone uh, a little bit bigger than that, depending on how you interpret prophecy How much of the Bible is actually prophetic and there is a tremendous amount that has yet to be fulfilled contrary to what other well-intentioned well-meaning preachers may be telling their congregations today. There are many events that have not yet been literally fulfilled. They may have been symbolically fulfilled in the past but they have not yet been literally fulfilled. When I made Promises to my wife when we were married. I made a covenant with her and God. And those promises need to be taken literally. She has a right to expect a literal fulfillment of those promises. Not just a symbolic. You said in sickness and in health. Well, I meant that symbolically, honey. I didn't mean that literally. And yet, that's how many in the church treat some of the promises of God to Israel and some of the promises of God to his church. Well, that's not, don't, you can't take that literally. Well, we will take these promises literally. But these promises are all fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Christ. The judgments will be fulfilled, overseen, sometimes through his angels, but overseen by God himself. And the promises will all be fulfilled by Christ himself. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus is the yes to every promise that God has ever made to you. We study this book because it reveals the character of our coming Savior, our Lord, our King, our God. It gives us hope That this world, as ugly as it is, and we're going to peel back the curtain today, we're going to see that there's a lot more ugliness than some of us are even willing to admit in the world today. But God is giving us, in the midst of that darkness, light and hope. And so as Christians, we study to know Jesus. We study to have hope for today today. And if you're here today or listening to this message today, whether it's on the podcast or on a CD or on Facebook or on WCBC or however this message comes to you today and you do not know Christ, this is God's warning to you. Don't delay. Don't put it off, because what is coming. Is hell on earth. And we're going to look at one of the chief servants of hell or at least what she represents today in Revelation 17. And so as we go from chapter 1 to 17, let me remind you, chapters 1 through 3 challenge the church to faithful living in preparation of His return. Chapters 4 and 5, the church is gone. We're out of here. We're in heaven with the Lord. And chapters 4 and 5 give us comfort that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. We'll be in the very presence of God without sin. We'll be free from the very... Presence of sin in our lives with him in heaven, with our loved ones in heaven, in his glorious presence. In chapter 6 through 18, we'll be in chapter 17 today. Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 18 next week. Chapter 6 and 18 record God's final warnings to a world that would reject Jesus Christ, his son. And then we are on the precipice. We're on the doorstep of chapter 19, which is when it gets awesome. And I know some of what, we, and some of what we're going to cover this morning is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It's going to take work. It's mysteries. That means we're going to have to put on our Inspector Clouseau costumes, right? Or hopefully maybe more like Sherlock Holmes than Inspector Clouseau. Although he did always get his, his uh, man or woman. I'm, I'm realizing some of you don't even know who Inspector Clouseau is. That's a shame. That's a shame. That's on your parents if they didn't introduce you to... Inspector Cluso. But chapter six through eighteen, that's the rough part. That we're 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 almost done the hard part. We're almost done the, the 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 gritty parsing through visions and trying to interpret the imagery. When we get to chapter 19, things are gonna become a lot more crystal clear and we're not we're not going to be in the visions we're in the dreams and visions we're going to be in what John was seeing the actual historic events that he was witnessing in reality and so let's today though consider one more of the mysteries of Babylon in Revelation chapter six, uh, 17 last week we looked at the rise of the fallen king and the identity of the beast this morning the mystery of the great harlot. Look at Revelation 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit. So we are in a vision. Some have tried to say this is a literal location in the wilderness, in the desert that he's going to. That's going to become clear in chapter um, as we go on that, that that's not the case, uh, that this is a vision. He's in the spirit now and he sees a vision of a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full Of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great, again, the King James says admiration, but it really means amazement. It means that he was provoked in awe. He's not. He's not uh, uh, amazed in a good sense. He's not admiring her in a good sense. He is shocked. The Greek word carries a sense that, it, that he is personally provoked by what he is seeing in this vision. And the angel, verse 7, said unto me, John, wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. In other words, the angel says, why is this a mystery? What is happening in your world, John? What is happening in your lifetime, John? Why are you, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, so so shocked at what is happening in the spirit realm behind the scenes? We're going to look at something now that has been going on for not just 2,000 years, but thousands of years of human history. The angel Said in verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, go into perdition. Here's the mind that hath wisdom, verse 9. In other words, these things take uh, thought and prayer and Bible study to understand. But he says in verse 9, the seven heads of the beast that we talked about last week are two things. They are seven literal kings, but they are also symbolic of the seven mountains on which the woman is. Sitteth. And so the woman sits on the seas in the vision. But in reality, the city of the woman in our world sits on the seven mountains. And there are seven kings that we talked about last week. Verse 12, the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast by the way I need to correct something incorrect that I said not only last week but I think I, I said it I think I said it done during the entire study we did on the book of Daniel and so I tell you often don't take my word for it because I sometimes make mistakes and I'm glad there weren't any amens I was expecting some amens at that point but I and by the way none of you corrected me on this so shame on you I mistakenly said that the, ten, that the Antichrist will rise out of the ten horns, that he is one of the first ten kings. He is not. Incorrect. Incorrect. I don't know how I missed this. But the Bible clearly and, and repeatedly says that the ten kings will rise first. He is not one of the ten. He is the eleventh. There will be a council of ten kings, and he will be the eleventh. Well, the council is only big enough for ten. Well, that's fine. He Even though he will start out as a Small power, he will emerge and become greater, and he will take out three of the existing kings. So 10 minus seven 10 minus three is. I, oh, I gave you the answer. Man, that is. I helped, I helped you out there, Marty. 10 minus three is seven. You. <laughs> You're welcome. Plus the Antichrist. Seven plus one is eight. Didn't we see that the uh, Antichrist is one of the seven, but also the eighth? So there is a double fulfillment of that prophecy. He will be one of the seven kings, but he will also be the eighth of the rulers as he removes three and he becomes part of this council of ten. Well, those other three must get replaced, too, because now we have ten kings and the beast. So we have another number, eleven. I don't know how many of you have studied the occult, but. Eleven, along with six, of course, six, six, six being the mark of the beast. Six is the number of man. Eleven is a number, uh, another number in the occult that has significance and ties specifically to the Antichrist. We see the number of eleven show up a number of times, even in the scriptures uh, concerning the Antichrist. I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But the ten kings, along with the Antichrist, form the leaders of the world and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her. We know kids in here this morning, right? And burn her with fire, for God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that Great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now, we are going to scratch the surface and I hope whet your appetite to go deeper into this subject. There are a number of great resources um, and great speculation on this particular chapter. My job this morning is just to introduce you to some concepts here and to pull back the veil, the curtain, as much as I can in the time that we have left to show you what clues God has given to us concerning the mystery of this great harlot who has been operating for literally thousands of years and continues to operate alongside the beast system, not the same as the beast, not the same as his system, but to operate alongside it now for thousands of years. There is a focus on Babylon in the scriptures. Let me talk for a moment to you about the focus That God places on Babylon. The word appears 11 times. In the New Testament. Again one of the numbers connected to the Antichrist. By the way. In this book of Revelation. 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 44 of them deal with Babylon. What's the percentage? Anyone want to guess? 11%. Is that a coincidence? I think not. God is giving us some prophetic markers here, some, some things to pay attention to. Mentioned 11 times, 11% of the verses in this book deal with Babylon. He is the 11th the king, the one king over the 10 kings. Babylon is the head of gold of the great image in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of Daniel, symbolizing the kingdoms that would dominate Israel from the time of Daniel until... The Second Coming of Jesus Christ. I have uh, taught extensively on Sunday nights on the book of Daniel. Those podcasts are available, CDs available if you put in a request. And so I'm not going to, to do a lot of deep diving into Daniel today other than to make a few references to it. Those messages are available where if you want to go deeper. And I hope that you do into Daniel. Daniel is such a critical book and understanding what is going to happen in the future in the timeline, and helping us understand the book of Revelation. But Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7 that even though the kingdom of Babylon would be succeeded by the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which would be succeeded by the kingdoms of the Greeks, which would be succeeded by the kingdom of Rome, which would be unlike any other kingdom because it would become divided, but then in the last days it would be revived under 10 toes or under 10 kings. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that Babylon as a spiritual entity will not be destroyed until the destruction of the Antichrist. The spirit of Babylon will continue to operate. By the way, he says that about the same thing about the spirit of Greece, the spirit of the Medes and Persians, the spirit of Rome, will continue to operate, Daniel chapter 7 says, those four beasts will not be completely slain and dead forever until the second coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, another passage of Scripture that I don't have time to dive into this morning, but that I would point you to emphatically is Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, which is, listen, clearly about the end times. There are many people who, when they get to prophecies they don't like, they say, well, that was just historic, and it wasn't literal. It's just symbolic language. The reason they have to say that is because those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled literally. And so in order to say that they're done and we don't have to pay attention to them, they have to say, well, they were symbolically fulfilled. No, Isaiah 14 has not been completely fulfilled yet, and it concerns the end times. And it identifies the Antichrist under two names. He, they, the Antichrist is called the King of Babylon and the Assyrian or Assur. The word can be translated either as the Assyrian or as a personal name. And last week we looked at Micah chapter 5 where we see the exact same thing. Asur or the Assyrian connected with the second coming. And we are highlighted in Micah chapter 5. Told, told to pay attention to the name Nimrod as well. But the king of Babylon, only one man in history could be called both king of Babylon and the Assyrian, king of Babylon and Assur, and that is Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10. I want you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 10 for a moment. Uh, keep your finger in Revelation chapter 17. Look with me, Genesis chapter 10. And the sons of Cush, verse 7, Seba, Havailah, and Saba, Sabta, and Rema, and Sabteca. And you'll notice the name is missing from that list. Verse 8, and Cush begot Nimrod. Now, some Bible scholars have surmised that Nimrod was actually the grandson of Cush and not his direct biological son some of you are raising or have raised your grandchildren or great grandchildren and so because of the uh, the exclusion of nimrod from the first list of sons but verse eight says that cush begot him some have surmised that he was the grandson of cush nimrod being cush's grandson he nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth he was a mighty hunter before the lord wherefore it is said even as nimrod the mighty hunter before the lord by the way The Hebrew word before can also mean against and would likely be a much better translation. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord in that he was doing what he was doing in defiance of God. And he was saying, God, watch me, God. I'm going to defy you. How does he defy him? The beginning of his kingdom, verse 10, was Babel, which became Babylon, and Irek and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Assur, and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kela So Nimrod apparently is also known here as the Assyrian Assur. Now look at chapter eleven of Genesis. The whole earth, verse one, was of one language, of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Notice it is capital L-O-R-D, meaning it is the covenant name. It is Jehovah came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men built it. And Jehovah said, Behold, the people are one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. In other words, They will pursue the wicked imaginations of their heart without restraint. And so, verse 7, go to let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called not Babylon initially, although that was what it was intended to be. But God called it Babel, meaning confusion because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth from thence did the Lord scatter from them from abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now the foundations of Babylon by the way the name Babylon means gate of the gods founded by Nimrod and the people of the world and Genesis chapter 11 which we just read reveals three Key commitments of Babylon. This is the spirit of Babylon that has been operating for thousands of years. Here's what it is. To work our own way into the heavens. To do it by our works, not God's work. Without the work of God. To immortalize our own glory. Not work for the glory of God. To bring glory to ourselves. And notice this, church, to unify in defiance of God's command to repopulate and fill the whole earth. Chapter 9, verse 7, Noah gets off of the ark with his family, nine uh, souls, two, four, six, eight souls. I'm struggling with the basics this morning. Eight souls got off that ark. And repopulated and they were to spread out over the whole planet and fill the whole planet and repopulate the whole planet and Nimrod and the people said, no, we ain't moving. We like it here. Let's build a name here. Let's defy God here. Let's build a gate to the gods ourselves. Let's get to the gods ourselves up into the heavens or the heaven of heavens. These three things are still true in the world today. The spirit of Babylon says, you're not an American citizen, you're a global citizen. You have global responsibilities, not American rights. You have global responsibilities. That's the spirit of Babylon. We're going to be one world. God created the nations. God spread us out over the earth. God separated them. That doesn't mean that we're, we're all to be um, uh, secluded from one another, by the way, because the Bible talks a lot about uh, how we should treat immigrants and how we should uh, be kind to other people and how we should New Testament church go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So we're not, we're not preaching some kind of isolationism here, but this idea that we need to leave our national distinctives and just be one world under one government is demonic. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Let us make our own glory. Let us do these things for ourselves. Today, friend, all false religions find their roots in the spirit of Babylon because they're all work-based, all of them. Even you You, cannot, you can tell a false version of Christianity very quickly, by what you need to do to get to heaven. And if it involves you doing anything but trusting in Jesus Christ, it is the spirit of Antichrist and Babylon. Amen. See, the true gospel is you cannot earn your way to God, you can't work your way to heaven, you're not good enough, and your debt is too great to ever be repaid. So God paid it for you, Amen. He sent Jesus Christ. God himself, born as a man, born of a virgin, born under the law, to live in perfect obedience to God's law so that he could be a sinless sacrifice. And 1 John 2, 2 says, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ paid off the sin debt of all mankind with his blood, and he rose victoriously from the dead on the third day so he can come back. And he can offer you grace. And forgiveness that you cannot earn. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so you have to admit that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. And you have to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. And then you need to call upon him. The Bible word for turning from sin and turning to Jesus is repent. You turn to your Savior. You call upon him and whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every other version is the spirit of Babylon and the spirit of Antichrist. You got to be baptized, spirit of Antichrist. You got to maintain your good church attendance. You've got to be a good person, spirit of Antichrist, spirit of Babylon. All false religions go back to Babylon. This is why she is called a harlot. Because, see, the Bible connects rejecting God and pictures it as a sexual sin. Israel was accused because they brought idols into their worship. They were accused of spiritual adultery. The church of Thyatira was judged by God because she allowed Jezebel to come in and teach, claiming to be a prophetess and to teach spiritual, God said, Jesus said, spiritual fornication. When you bring idolatry into your worship, you are committing a spiritual sin that is pictured as a sexual sin. And this great harlot is called such because she is the mother of all false religion. She teaches people to commit spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. The foundation's of Babylon are in the Tower of Babel. But let me tell you, just as that tower fell, Babylon will fall as well. The Spirit lived on, but only for a time. Oh, it's been a long time from our perspective. But she has an expiration date. Look again in Revelation, the book of Revelation. I want to show you that the Bible tells us that there will be at least two falls of Babylon. By the way, that was first predicted in Isaiah 21, verse 9, where we are told Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But it is repeated here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And again, in chapter 18, verse 2, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. There are at least two falls. And so there are at least two forms. Babylon. Now, the first time the fall of Babylon is announced is before the final seven plagues. That's chapter 14, verse 8. Remember, we saw there were the uh, uh, seal judgments, there were the trumpet judgments, and then there's this pause around the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. So Israel confirms a covenant with the Antichrist. For seven years, three and a half years, everything looks like it's going great. And then Antichrist breaks the covenant, declares himself to be God in the very temple of God. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. The spirit, that spirit is already working, but there's a day coming when he is going to actually come into the temple of God, which will be rebuilt, declare himself to be God. He will kill the two witnesses and we will be in the last half of the book. But we're also told at that midpoint of the tribulation that Babylon falls. There is a fall that is pronounced. That's what we just read about in chapter 17 when those 10 kings turn against Babylon and destroy Babylon in a single day. And then the Antichrist takes control of the world under those 10 kings. He's only got control of the whole world for three and a half years, folks. He's going to be active before that, but he's not one of the 10 kings. The ten kings will get the first three and a half years and then the Antichrist gets the next three and a half years operating over the ten kings. Babylon falls and then there are the seven final plagues that we read about, chapters 15 and 16. And what happens in the seventh and final plague about three years, three and a half years later, right, right before the second coming? We're told that Babylon falls again. Well, wait a second. I thought Babylon fell. when there's two Babylons. Actually, there's five. Let me show you what they are. Five Babylons in Scripture. At least. Two falls. Five Babylons. Number one, ancient Babylon. That's the Tower of Babel we talked about just a few minutes ago in Genesis chapter 11. That's, that was destroyed when God confused the languages and the tower was abandoned. Although it is said that for many years afterward the uh, remains of the tower were visible. Number two, historic Babylon. That's where David was, or excuse me, Daniel and the three uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew friends, were carried off into captivity to the historic city of Babylon. That city was overthrown, captured by the Medes and the Persians in Daniel chapter five. But da- but Babylon is also an empire we see in Daniel chapter two. That's the kingdom of Babylon. That was under Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. That kingdom was absorbed into or replaced by the kingdom of Medo Persia, uh, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, recorded in Daniel chapter 5. But again, Daniel chapter 7 says it won't, the kingdom of the empire will be gone, but the spirit will remain. And that brings us, number 4, to spiritual Babylon. That here in Revelation is called mystery Babylon, Babylon the Great the ever evolving socio-economic religious and political system of rebellion and deception that is empowered by the beast himself and the spirit of antichrist himself now this was centered in Rome in the first century in fact first peter chapter 5:13 peter uh, most bible commentators believe writing from the city of rome called rome babylon in what sense Rome had become the spiritual Babylon of the world in the first century. Babylon had already, Rome, as Babylon, had already martyred all of the apostles but John. When John writes this, so when you see in chapter 17, verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You understand, John's talking about his own brother's blood there. He's talking about Peter's blood. He's talking about the blood of his friends and family that had been slain by the spirit of Babylon present in the city of Rome. Daniel chapter 9 says that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the people of the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, the people of the Antichrist, the, the nation of Rome, the city of Rome, which destroyed The city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy. The temple in fulfillment of prophecy. Spiritual Babylon remains. Now, something I need to tell you about the worship of Babylon. The worship of Babylon did not just center on Nimrod. It also centered on his wife, Queen Semiramis. Now, when Nimrod married, according this is, of course, outside of Scripture, so this is history here. We're not in dogma. We are in, we are in history, which is not perfect and has flaws, unlike the Word of God. But history claims that Queen Semiramis, when she married Nimrod, she already had a son named Tammuz, whom she claimed had been miraculously conceived, that he was a virgin-born son, she claimed. And she also claimed that Tammuz had been killed by a wild animal and had been dead for 40 days and then had raised from the dead. That she was the virgin mother of a virgin born and resurrected child. And so Semiramis was worshipped as the Queen of heaven, Jeremiah 7:18, God judges the nation of Israel for their worship of the Queen of Heaven. Anyone who talks about any queens of heaven is talking to you about Mystery Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, not the real Miriam, mother of Jesus. Tammuz mentioned by name in Ezekiel 8:14, the women. Weeping over Tammuz as part of their religious idolatry. This blasphemy continued in Phoenicia with the worship of Ashereth and Baal. In Egypt with the worship of Isis and Osiris. In Greece with the worship of Aphrodite and Eros. And in Rome under the names Venus and Cupid. You're starting to understand why Israel was called Sodom and Egypt in chapter 11, verse 8. And also knowing that Israel was referred to as two other nations gives us a Bible reason for saying that the city of Babylon, the mystery of Babylon is not the literal city of Babylon, which, by the way, was never built on seven hills. It was built on a plain, wasn't even built on one hill. Then we see as we'll look at something we'll look at next week, a nation called the daughter of Babylon. This is the nation that will either house or champion the Babylon system in the last days. And this appears, if we look at all of the scriptures, we'll look at, at some of them more closely next week, the daughter of Babylon appears to be what is destroyed in Revelation chapter 14, before the plagues. And the spiritual Babylon, the mystery Babylon, is what is destroyed at the end of those seven plagues. And so the Antichrist will rise to power in a nation, very likely or certainly will use the power of a nation. The Bible describes as daughter of Babylon Four different prophets talk about this nation. We'll talk about her next week. But then he will, with the kings, betray her and destroy her completely. And then himself will be destroyed about three and a half years later by Jesus Christ himself. Now we'll talk about the features of Mystery Babylon in this nation next week. But Nick, if you could skip to the very last slide. I want to remind you, Babylon is going to fall. She hasn't fallen yet. She's still operating in the world today. We don't live this morning in fear of martyrdom, most of us, I would guess. But many, many Christians, maybe even most Christians around the world today, do. They live in fear that their service will be interrupted by the police. They live in fear of being dragged off and thrown into prison with no hope of escape, only execution for heresy as their only way out. Babylon is still operating today in the Hindu world, in the Muslim world. In the communist world, Babylon is still operating today in the United States and in Cumberland, Maryland. But she is doomed to fall. There is no security in Babylon. We'll see next week that she is full of political power. She is full of economic power. She is full of prestige, but she is doomed. Don't put your hope in a religious system. Don't put your hope today in your church attendance or what you put in the offering plate. There is only one hope. That's Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose again. He's offering you forgiveness of sins. He's offering you eternal life. If you haven't accepted that, why haven't you accepted it? There is no hope outside of him. And if you have accepted that, why aren't we living like it? Why aren't we living like He's our hope? Why are we putting our hope in our 401Ks and where we live and what we have and who knows our name and the titles they call us? All of that's going to fade away. Jesus Christ is forever. Would you stand as we close in a word of prayer? Father, we thank You for God pulling back the curtain and revealing to us this wicked woman who is so operative in the world today, preaching one world, preaching unity of man, but unity without you, unity of mankind, but unity without the king of kings. Father, we pray that our hope is truly in your son, Jesus Christ, our savior and our Lord and the coming king. And father, if there's somebody here today who does not know you, God, I pray that they would be woken up today to the spiritual reality of their need for Jesus Christ. And this would be the day when they would place their faith and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing this hymn with me? The altar is open if you have a need. If you need to come pray, if you need to come pray with one of our deacons or deacons' wives, the altar is open. Now is the time to respond. Let's
2: sing together. I am thine, own. draw me near
1: how you are moving and how you are working, God, and God, we know that you are full of grace, that you are not slack concerning your promises, but are long-suffering, God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, God, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, we thank you for how you're moving here this morning, God, and God, these requests that are being lifted up right now, God, we ask your blessing on each one. We ask that you be working in each prayer, in each heart, in each circumstance, and God, that your uh, mercy and love will be evident as you answer, God, and you move in power. Father, may we be more discerning about the world that we live in may we remember god that we wrestle not with flesh and blood but we do wrestle god as a church as christian families with principalities and powers with the rulers of the darkness of this world with spiritual wickedness in high places but god that you are victorious over all of them and our hope god is not in our strength but in yours Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you again. Remember, no service tonight. I hope that you have a great Labor Day weekend. Yes. Yes. Here. Okay. Yeah. Amen.
0: That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The Youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful.